Lord, so as you're seated in heavenly places. So just this next moment, I want you to posture yourself right there in your mind's eye. So much of what we do is done from the understanding that God is out there and we're somewhere over here. But Jesus prayed for unity between us and him. And he got what he prayed for. Abba answered his prayer. And he positioned you right where you're supposed to be next to him. So I just want you to just take your needs, take yourself, take what you think you own, lay it down and just let him say your name as you say his Jesus this morning. We lift up the name of Jesus this morning because your word says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And that is your heart, Lord, to have every man come to you, every woman come to you and bow the knee. So we lift you up now, Lord. We lift you up, O oh God. Soften hearts, Holy Spirit, those hard hearts that you've already vanquished at the cross. Let time and eternity meet in this moment. Let it offer itself as surrender in the hearts of your people. May your heart be satisfied for what you died to possess. fulfill God himself. This is our purpose. All things were created for your pleasure and for your glory. They were created and were made. We exist for your happiness, Abba. Not our own. We surrender our theologies and our agendas and our Bible studies. Because when, when we see you, we will fall at our, on our face as though we were dead. There will be no confidence in anything we've learned or have done because we are in the presence of the Ancient of Days who now exists in our hearts, which Paul calls the great mystery of the gospel. That we house the Eternal Father deep within us. And that causes our hearts to bow low before you that you chose 
such a vessel to inhabit. Not visit, but inhabit. May we be reduced to nothing but glorifying you. Open our eyes, we pray, with Paul, that desperate, gut-wrenching cry that I can see him praying through tears, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, that I may know him. May that be the cry of your people.
watched people come to the altar and now they sob. Walk out, never changed. And then I've watched people actually just take a moment in their heart and say, God, I'm so done. I need you. It's just a change in mindset. It's not a moment at an altar. It's changing how you're thinking about what's valuable in life and what is your destiny and your purpose. Changing how you think and how you see things. And then following an action based upon your, your surrender and your decision. Confession of sin is what we usually call repentance. The two are different. really means to change how you think. In fact, the kingdom of God is not even able to be understood until you come to repentance. You can confess your sin and never repent. Happens all the time. People say they're sorry. They never change. Change how you view God. Change how you view yourself. Change how you view others. This is the criteria in which we understand the kingdom. Jesus' first message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. You can't understand anything he's going to say after that point if there's not the repentance first, which is why the church is so messed up, because we're trying to interpret the teachings of Jesus without the repentance he requires first. You'll never understand your master until you come into the alignment in which he came to him himself, submitted. The nature he placed inside of you is not a maverick, it's not a renegade, it's a servant. made to serve and it's not happy until it fulfills its destiny. Who he made you to be is to be a sacrifice. Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. You with me? All right. Lord, take our ears, take my words. May they both be yours. May you change our life. In your name we pray. you guys such a blessing wow it's love to watch them minister to the Lord and I pray that they minister to you as they did that as they made themselves vulnerable worship isn't a song it's an identity it's a posture of the heart worship by the law of first mention in scripture means it's a sacrifice First time that's ever mentioned is when Abraham takes his one and only son and says, let's go worship. And takes him up on a mountain to kill him. You know what the modern church does? We don't take our Isaacs to Jesus, we just take our sin. We want to come worship with a blemished lamb of our life and leave the best at home. And that's why we don't understand the gospel. 
And that's why the world doesn't understand our gospel. Because the world, even though it's far from God, it understands one thing. It understands when a true image of Jesus shows up and not just an imposter. I want you to turn with me. I've got some things I want to share with you, if you allow me to. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be there in just a second. Hang with me, please. I'll try to be brief for the sake of your uh, seat. These people can't really pay attention much longer than their rear end can allow them to. Should be better than that, but we're not there yet. <laughs> I want you to understand something, that in the Old Testament, there was a requirement for sacrifices that God gave Israel. And there had to be a certain order and a certain operation in which a sacrifice was given. There had to be a perfect lamb there had to be something that was of a different order and a different species. It was the best of the best, and it went through a specific process in order to be sacrificed. If there was one flaw and one blemish, it was not able to be used. Are you with me on this? We understand that this relates to Jesus, but most of the time we don't understand that this relates to us as well. We are called the what of his pasture. Why? Because we're meant to be slaughtered. Do you know what the word sacrifice means in the Greek? Slaughtered with a purpose. We were meant to be killed. If not in the ultimate sense of martyrdom, then in the temporary sense of surrender, the cross of Christ, every day of our life. And when we don't live in that context, Christianity fails us and it doesn't make sense, even though we're desperately trying to breathe life into something that doesn't exist. You with me? So there was, a, there was a process and an order in which Jesus fulfilled every purpose, everything under heaven was fulfilled in him. He was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the old covenant. He was the perfect lamb. He reset the story. And why did he do that? See, what you have to understand and what we don't understand about the death of Jesus is that he didn't have to come. We read the story as if it's set in stone, but it was a choice that he made. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see multiple times that God was ready to wipe out all of civilization and start over with one holy man. Why did he come? Because of his ferocious love for you and I. He came because he wanted to. He fulfilled the destiny because it was of his heart and of his nature to do so. He couldn't leave us suffering. What we don't understand is that when Adam sinned, we were born into that slavery. Literally, in the spirit realm, we were sucking graves in captivity. We were stuck in an ownership that we couldn't change. No matter how holy and hard you tried, no matter how much you fasted and prayed under the old covenant, you still were in a prison of law and death. Nothing could set you free. You were a carcass waiting to die, fearing death, ruled by the things that you couldn't do yourself that you were required to accomplish. Imagine that weight, and it's the same weight that so many people in modern Christianity carry today, and there's a set of rules that they can never be good enough to actually accomplish. And yet we get up every morning and try all of it again. And we're spinning to our business waiting to do it. It's not about what we can accomplish, it's about everything he's called us to. Amen. 
send somebody who's truly in love with Jesus, and I will show you somebody that I do not have to convince to want to know. Do you understand what I mean? If I could say that in some circles, then people would be like, well, you know, you got to have your works, buddy. Listen, if you have a love, show up with that. Jesus loved us and his works. By the way, welcome our guests, you guys, Chris and Katrina. Thank you. Is that right? I got your names right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, so I, I want you to understand something. When Jesus comes on the scene, this entire order of sacrifice had been laid out. These were Jewish people that understood what the lamb was supposed to be. They understood what sacrifice was. They understood that when you put a lamb on the altar, the priest, after slitting that thing open, would wash the entrails, the guts, with water to purify the innards, and they would be placed upon a fire that would be burned unto God for a sweet incense, which means, in a, in a prophetic sense, the insides of who we are are supposed to be washed by that great water and offered to God as a sacrifice unto him, the deep places of our life. But those are the things that we withhold from him. Do you realize that God sacrificed the things that we would keep And he kicked, out, he kicked out the stuff that we would keep and then he retained the stuff that we would throw away. He had the flesh and the skin burned outside the camp of the, of the offering. And he took the guts and the, the leftovers and the stuff that we can't eat. And he said, that's what I want you to offer me. Because what's pleasing in the sight of man is not pleasing in the sight of God. Your exterior show that you put on doesn't mean anything to Abba. It's what's deep inside your guts that he's after. The priest would reach his, his hand up inside the animal all the way to an elbow. And he would pull out the precious and offer it on the altar to God. And when Jesus was on that cross, there was something that, that God reached up inside of him and poured out into the earth. The deep of God given to us. Nothing withheld. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in John 129, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, because this is still under the Old Covenant. See, in my, my theological opinion, the New Covenant, it doesn't start until the resurrection. That's, that's when the New Covenant starts. Jesus was the first prophet of the New Testament. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old. And he says he was one of the greatest, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than he is. Because I'm about to usher in a new order. I'm going to usher in something that far surpasses what was old. And so it's interesting for us because what happens when we teach, we teach the teachings of Jesus in an Old Testament mindset whenever we're supposed to have a New Testament reality. You got to understand the teaching had to come before the reality so that way the reality could reinforce the teaching that was already given. He said the Holy Spirit will come and give you everything you need and remind you of everything I said. He had to establish the principles of who we were and then baptize us into that so we could be raised up into that newness of life. Matthew 5, the greatest sermon in the world, isn't a list of rules. It's an outline of identity. 
It's who you are in Christ. Poor, mourn, meek, hunger, merciful, persecuted, blessed, favored, treated like God himself. This is your purpose. You with me? John 1.29, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament order, under the law of sacrifice, says, what is it? You got it up there? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Why was he able to do that? Because he fulfilled the order of sacrifice for you. Do you realize how much it took for him to stay pure for 30 years? Not one time. So you know what we do? This, this has been painfully obvious to me, even in, especially in ministry, especially amongst pastors and leaders, including myself. God has had to lay me low on this specific issue. One of the things that I see a lot is that we walk in presumption and call it faith. We do what we want to do, and then we ask God to bless it. In my Bible, that's creating Ishmael. We decide what we're going to do, and then we stand in faith on that. When someone comes and says, well, you, what's going on? Well, I'm having a hard time, brother. Well, just stand in, I'm just standing in faith. No, you're standing in presumption because you never asked God in the first place if he even wanted you to be where you're at. And then confusion sets in, and then we quote scriptures like God's not the author of confusion, but we're confused because we're confused. Jesus said, I do nothing. Nothing. Unless I see my father do it. I'm not there, but I want to be. Behold the Lamb of God. Look at him. When you look at anything else, Christianity ceases to make sense. If you're going to look at your sin, if you're going to look at the powers of darkness, if you're going to look at anything other than the Lamb of God, nothing else makes sense. It's, it, was, it was prophetic, and he didn't even know it. He was presenting Jesus as the prophet the way the prophets would use to present the king under the anointing. In fact, what happened at the baptism was a fulfillment of what happened with David and every other king as they were anointed by the prophet. He was releasing that authority onto Jesus, but it was also prophetic in a statement he didn't even realize he was making. Look at him, because anything else is going to send you down the wrong path. And it's the thing we do the least. 99.9% .9 of the counseling sessions I have are because people's eyes are on something other than Jesus. Simple and is that. Behold the lamb. In other words, this is your destiny. Look at him. This is the nature in which you will be created in. There was a prophetic statement happening that he didn't even realize. He was showing the world and the Israelite nation, this is your new identity. This is what you are made to be. This is coming from heaven, and it will be your destiny and your identity. It will become who you are. He will gain you more than you've gained him. Does this make sense to you? This is how the gospel starts, with the presentation of who we're supposed to be. Not by works, but because he's going to fulfill that for us, because we're unable. And John the Baptist looks and says to everybody, pay attention to him. He is your identity. He's where you come from. He is who you're made of. You're not made of the old order anymore. One of the things that I disagree with theologically is that statement, John 3.30, where John says he must increase and I must decrease. We take that on a physical sense. 
That's not what he's talking about. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the ministry of repentance under the old covenant has to decrease. And his ministry of the New Testament covenant reality has to increase. You need to come away from this uh, water-based mentality into a blood-based mentality. Because if you get baptized in water under the old covenant, you're just going to have to do it again next week. But the blood covers. John's saying, my ministry has to go away and his has to rise. God doesn't want you to decrease. He made you. He likes you the way he made you. And he can only increase in himself by using you. The flesh, yes, that has to be crucified. But the nature, beholding the lamb, who you really are in you, God's unique expression through who you are has to increase. Not the self-man, not the man who postures himself in, in, in staunch defiance before the Lord, but the one who God made inside of you, who's submissive, who comes low and says, I'm here to do the work of my Father. To the individual gifting he's given me, all submitted to the body, echoing as one that will reverberate throughout eternity, bringing glory to the King. This is the gospel. That he made this for us became what he came so that we could become that he became like man so we could become like him and not just in word but in deed and truth that the fullness of God would be possessed in his people not just a fraction or a part we have just enough gospel to get people saved and then we're confused after that the demonstration happens through your uniqueness as you surrender to him. Why did he give gifts and callings? So that he could equip the church until we all became like Jesus. He needs you. God, imagine that, creating such a structure that he would confine himself to needing you. Sure, he can do it by himself, but show me in scripture any time where he's ever delivered a nation, even through Jesus Christ himself, where he didn't use flesh. We call those times miracles. God calls them exceptions. You have a purpose, and it's not just to live for your own lusts, your own plans, and your own homes and dreams. In fact, your life won't make sense until you surrender those things. This man, was, he was made, custom made. Jesus was given a body, custom made for sacrifice, for the purpose of an offering being poured out, and so were you. You were made into his image, which means you were made in the form of a perfect sacrifice. You are that pure lamb he made. You fulfill through Christ that Old Testament order of being that spotless lamb. So now that you've been made spotless, what? You live the rest of your life in your own uh, arrogance and religious touting of yourself and your gifts to others? No, so you can be sacrificed for someone other than yourself. That's the gospel. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? Everybody says that like it's some ethereal thing, the verse before it. Taking thought for someone else's life more than your own. That's the mind of Christ. It's simple. Living for someone else. Isn't that what he did? 
Isn't that his nature? It's the nature of God to give. Why? Because it's the nature of God to be blessed. It's more blessed to give than receive. And it's your nature to be blessed as well. But you know what we've done? We've perverted it. We call blessing money and cars and houses, all which will be taken away. What does Jesus say? You're blessed when you're poor, when you mourn, when you're meek, when you're hunger, when you're persecuted. Why? Because you're fulfilling your destiny. You're issuing a New Testament order. You're releasing the life of God into the earth through your sacrifice. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In fact, I would even go as far as to say Christianity doesn't make sense outside of sacrifice. Any version of Christianity without sacrifice is just religion. It's a mere attempt, a cheap copy to, to, to convince others that you're fulfilling the requirements, yet you're hollow and empty on the inside is what Jesus told the Pharisees. Men who wouldn't even swallow their own spit when they fasted. You know what Jesus said? Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Pharisees, otherwise you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And for years when I was growing up, I heard preachers talking about how we needed to be more holy because I said, no, no. The righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is Jesus. And he's my righteousness, so therefore I automatically supersede those men. Because of his existence, not because of anything I've done. He's given me that authority. I am automatically righteous because of his blood. Demons fear me just because I exist. My king walked his life, followed Abba, and demons came and bowed to him. Because they fear sons. Because sons aren't afraid to die. In fact, they've died a thousand deaths before they've ever become a martyr. They're familiar with it. They understand release. They know that they are the gift to the world. And they're waiting, poised to be poured out like their master. Sacrifice can only be birthed through love, nothing else. I want you to see in Matthew chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. But this is the great clash of powers. Think of this moment. Why did Jesus meet toe-to-toe, face-to-face, eye-to-eye with Lucifer himself in the middle of the wilderness? Because he had to establish an authority over something we could not he was gaining for us what we lost ourselves. He already knew he could beat the guy. He knew he was pure, but he had to prove not only to hell, but to us, I'm returning your authority to you, and I'm here for this single purpose. The clash of titans. The only time Lucifer arrives to a single man in scriptures twice, once to Adam, once to Jesus. Why? Because he recognizes pure sons, and that's what he wants to attack. Anybody else, they drill themselves into their own grave, and he just winds them up like a toy and kicks them off. Most of what people say, oh, the devil's attacking me. No, that's your flesh. 
That's just you. You know, my Bible says the devil's been defeated. He's been stripped of all authority. He has no power. You know what? You know how powerful you actually are that you don't actually believe these things? That the oppression that you go through in your life is self-inflicted, and that's why it hurts so much because you're so powerful. You're falling on your own sword the same way the Sawline Empire did. You know why your emotions feel so strong and powerful against yourself? You feel like it's the enemy or a circumstance? No, it's your own authority released against you. You are cannibalizing yourself. The devil's just using your authority against you. He has no sword. He has no weapons. He has nothing. You possess all things in Christ. That's what he said. And he's turning those weapons that you own against you because you're allowing it because you simply believe a lie. Believe the truth and you will see it. Amen. He challenges the accuser to restore your authority. Do you realize what he's doing here? It's not just, listen to me, think with me for just a second. What Jesus is doing right here to the devil on all three temptations isn't just him. Everything he's doing, you are in him. Say, so how do you know that? Because when he died on the cross, Paul tells us that we were co-crucified with him. How did we get there? You didn't put yourself there. He brought you there with him and stuck you there the same way you were with him in this moment. Regaining, he was regaining under the authority of man, the authority of man. Through Christ and him being one with us and praying for that final fulfillment in John 17, everything that's going on in Matthew 4, he was gaining with and for you. He was establishing the, to the demon, I am, I am creating an entirely new species of humanity and I'm proving to you that we are no longer servant to you. And everybody under me after this point who truly surrenders their kingship to me will have the same authority I'm about to exercise over you. This is making sense to you. Listen, if Jesus prays for unity and we will be one with God, I don't know how you can separate any distinctions there because he's the one that taught us divided houses fall and God doesn't create divided things. When he created us the first time, he said it is good. When he created us the second time, he said it's finished. But, 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 but my master said all things are possible to him who believes. He's the one that coined the phrase only believe. But you can't believe if you're standing in presumption. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. In other words, faith does not actually apply itself to anything other than God's pure word. You can't apply faith to presumption and human will. It won't fit. It doesn't stick. The only time faith is actually alive and present and living is if it's applied to what God is saying for your now. So in Matthew 4, he challenges the accuser and the human nature and wins. Which means you won. In Luke 4, you guys made it there yet? 
I gave you enough time, didn't I? Some of you are still looking. In Luke 4, verse 18, listen to this. Can you put it up there for me? Verse 18, if you, can, if you can go to 18. Listen to this. Jesus is the first prophet of the New Testament. With me? He reserves the right. Listen to this. This is amazing. He reserves the right to express all of the fivefold gifts himself first. He was apostolic, he was prophetic, he was evangelistic, he was a teacher, and he was pastoral. He secured every office unto himself. And this is what he says. This is, listen, listen, this isn't just a statement. He's walking into the seat of religious authority and power. He just, follow me, he just beat the devil. He beat human nature. See, he's got to win on every realm. Why? Because he's got to win for you. So he goes from beating darkness and the nature of self into the nature of religion, which is the uh, defining factor of who God is to the people. And they had it all wrong. Just like whenever you get hammered by the Holy Spirit and you wake up after that moment and you just tears all down your face. Well, one thing you know is that you had it all wrong. Whatever he just got done dealing with you on, I mean, you, you, you can't have a moment like that without walking away going, man, I had that all wrong. And that will happen over and over and over again. Verse 18, he says, he comes in, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Ruach of God is in me and it's blowing through this moment right now. Not the, not the wind of man, not the wind of religion. I'm ushering in a new spirit for a new identity. You with me? I'm restoring what you had before. This voice, this power, this word, this wind that's inside of me, I'm releasing it now through prophetic utterance into the earth. And when you know something about sound waves, they don't stop. As soon as you release something, it goes bouncing around in the atmosphere, which I'm telling you, the prayers of Jesus are still reverberating in our world. And they're knocking us in the back of the head all the time, and we just don't listen. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me. He has poured the oil on me and set me in the order of a king. That's what prophets did whenever a new king was about to rise, right? They poured the oil. Do you realize anointing only comes by sacrifice. Charisma and anointing are two different things. You can operate your gift out of charisma and you can move men emotionally, but they'll never change. They'll stay the same men. But an anointing digs deeps. Something that you're releasing starts causing hearts to churn inside and says, man, whatever this guy, whatever this woman's saying, whatever she's praying, whatever's happening right now, it's messing with me. You see an anointed person, you automatically know, automatically know they have suffered greatly. And he's the most anointed man on the planet. Mm -hmm. 
learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And you know what our prayers consist of? Relieve, alleviate the suffering, Lord. He's like, so you don't you want to learn how to obey me. You understand he's the standard, not you. Your opinion of theology is not the standard. My opinion of theology is not Jesus is the standard that which we will be judged by. He's the man. He's the image. We either fit by his blood or we've created something else, and that's when he's going to say, I don't know what that is. That's certainly not me. That's a blemished sacrifice. Right? He says, he says, he's anointed me. Why? So he could be such a great minister and have his face plastered on Charisma magazine? To have the next word for the Elijah list and be brought on some Christian TV show? He's anointed me to proclaim good news to beggars. That's what that word means. Beggars, people who have no substance of themselves. None. To bring good news. Walking up to a beggar, I've got such good news to tell you. Like, my life sucks. What? What? Good news. What's the good news? It's me. I'm here. I'm restoring your destiny. Where is he saying this at? In the seat of religion. In the synagogue itself. He, he went to the church to, do, to exercise his dominance over the thing that was causing people to perceive him incorrectly. Because that's what he wants. He wants us to know him. Good Lord, even you and I have that desire. You, I don't want you to know me by your opinion of me because you'll be wrong. Those of you who don't know me, you're going to have a certain opinion of me, probably negative, maybe positive after today, but it's still not me. My wife tells me all the time when people people hate me and hate my preaching or whatever, which doesn't bother me anymore, but she's like, they don't, they don't know you. Yeah, I know they don't. And so I have a question. Would you rather be known by the way people think you are or by the way you know you really are? What makes you think God's any different? See, that's his heart cry right now. I want you guys to know who I am. I'm here for the broken. Somebody should say, that's me. He's here for you. He sent me to what? To proclaim, to decree, and to, to pardon, and to pronounce freedom over the prisoners of war. That's what that means. Because under the Adamic nature, you were literally locked in a cell, starving under your own identity. And he says, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to stay in that cage anymore. I'm here to give you something new. But you know what we did? We took the new and we tried to force it back into the old. My God, every church I've ever been in, they preach salvation by grace, but then after that, there's this residue of works that you have to come up to. And if you don't come up to it, you gotta come back and get saved all over again. And you're never good enough. 
I lived under that horrible thing for so many years and it about killed me. And I watched it kill some of my friends. I know atheists today that were underneath the Pensacola revival in the 90s because of that whole thing right there. Slaughtered under the power of God, seen angels, atheists, because they weren't good enough. I'm sorry I woke up the baby. Mama, forgive me. You'll never be a good enough Christian for the devil. If you fast three days, it could have been four. If you pray for two hours, it should have been three. Jesus isn't looking for that. You'll fast because you're a son. And when you do, the fast won't be the goal. The obedience will. And you'll understand that he understands what it means to be flesh, which is why he has compassion. He knows what it's like to be you. See, there's something about God that we don't understand. God knew man by relationship, but he didn't know man by experience. This is why it seems there's a different God in the Old Testament versus the one in the New. He's not, the, he's not different. He's the same. But in Christ, he gained a greater experience of what it meant to be sold under the slavery of sin. And it brought out of him love and compassion for us. And you know what we do? We see the faults of our, other, our brothers and sisters and we don't have compassion. The first thing you should think is, my God, how can I help them? He says, I've given power to declare pardon over you. <laughs> I've been given power to declare pardon over you. Not guilty. Remember that voice in your head? John 19, 30, you don't have to turn there. This is where he says, it is finished. He dies on the cross. In John 19, 30, he challenged death and hell. And what? So we see, we see three things. He challenged the accuser and the flesh, the religious system, and death and hell. And he won. Why? because you couldn't do it and he knew it. And he had compassion on you. And he restored you into what you had lost. You never could gain on your own. 
The only power, listen to me now, the only power he does not challenge is yours. What? What? What a gentleman. What an awesome God. That he came with ferocity and stared into the eyes of death and the, and the accuser. Didn't even blink looking into Lucifer's eyes. Conquered the nature of man. Again, faced off with religious devils, intimidated the heck out of them to the point where after Luke 4, they take him to throw him off a cliff and he just walks right on by. He challenges the power of death and hell. Slides down the belly of the beast and he's so pure and holy that hell has to spit him out. Beating every challenge in his way. And the only thing he will not challenge is you. You know why? Because in Revelation, he says you are a king and you are a priest. And for this momentary space, what we call time, you have authority as a king to rule however you want. It will be taken away from you, yes. But for right now, he doesn't challenge your dominion. You know why? Because if he took everything away from you and forced you to serve him, you would have no ability to give something freely. This is your moment of testing. After everything's given back to you, what do you do with it? God knows that the moment you stand before Jesus Christ, you will be in the presence of a giver and that presence will overwhelm you and the only thing you will want to do on that final day is give something to him. And if your hands are empty, it means you've never surrendered your crowns before you got there. Romans 12, one and two says, you are made to be a living sacrifice. You are made to be slaughtered for a purpose. When you give up your life for someone else, when you sacrifice for someone who isn't worthy, when you sacrifice for someone who can't pay you back, when you feed somebody who has no ability to repay you, you are operating in the sacrificial nature of the lamb. When you forgive someone who's wronged you, you are operating in the nature of God Almighty. There's something that happened in the Old Testament. When a king would come in and conquer a land, many times they would drag the conquered king before the conquering king. And that king would come and be on his face. He would lay prostrate before the king who conquered him. And he would take his crown off and he would lay it at, his, at the feet of the conquering king. In other words, what he was saying was, I was a king. I owned all this. You beat me. It's no longer mine. My family, my money, my kingdom, my geography, my houses, my lands are now under your authority. It's scary to me how many Christians who are kings have never been conquered by love. Like it or not, your nature was meant to be conquered by love. Self-love or God-love, one of them will conquer you. One of them will cause you to take your crowns somewhere.
kind of offering are you? What kind of lamb are you? What kind of sacrifice are you? He made you like this so that you could do this for others. To restore the sight of the blind, that word blind in the Greek comes from a root word to be arrogant and lifted up with pride. Because pride blinds you to your true reality and his. He wants us to see. This is why he's the only person in the Bible who could restore sight to the blind. And then after him, he gave us that authority. Nobody in the Old Testament did it. Raising the dead, the Jews knew that was possible. This is why they said, he opens the eyes of the blind. In other words, he knows how to bring down the proud. Who's ever done that? Any minister will tell you that the moment you encounter pride, you're done. You can't make people humble. Why? Because the Bible says humble yourself. It's a self-voluntary action. He knows how to do it. He has the ability. If we'll just surrender. Listen to this. I'm going to close with this. The only thing of value, listen to me, the only thing of value in the kingdom, the only thing of value in the kingdom is that which is freely given. If it's forced from your hands, Your crowns are only valuable as long as they're in your possession. The moment he peels them out of your hand, they're worth nothing. Let me ask you this this morning. Have you fully surrendered to Jesus? I'm not asking you how long you've been saved. Salvation is a process. It's not a moment. There's two words in the Greek for the word Son. One is an immature baby, and the other is a mature version of Jesus. In Revelation 20, when he says, I will call you my son, and I will be your God, that word he uses there is the mature version, which means there's a lot of technons that don't make it. Because in Christianity, the only reason you don't grow you don't submit. Under the nature of humility in, in, in Jesus, you grow. You just do. You don't have to try. You just naturally bear the image of your father. You guys can put some music on just for a second or play or whatever you all want to do. If you need prayer, we want to pray for you. I'm not going to draw it out and drag it out because it's, it's not something that uh, I'm interested in manipulation. But do you realize that your life has been out of order, or even as a believer, that you've come to this place in your life where you realize that you still retain your crowns and you're not living for other people, you're living for yourself because that's the nature of Jesus. You know how you know when you finally get to maturity, it's not about you anymore. Not about how you feel, not about your offense. Offense is just a preschool temper tantrum that you didn't get your way. Offense is an opportunity to show love. That's all it is. 
It's an opportunity for you to lay down your rights and your ideas and your agendas and to say, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'll be the doormat. I count it an honor to let you walk on me if it brings you to Christ. So if you need to come forward, just please do so. get some of the ladies uh, that made covenant with us to come pray over her. Just lift your hands to heaven, Lord. Lindsay, come on up here. everything that he had to do for us. It's going to level us. When you see him, you're going to realize it's all going to be clear. And also it says that when we see him, we will be like him, for we've seen him as he is. In other words, not as we thought he was. Right? May the Lord bless you and keep you face shone upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, be gracious to you, and may the Lord give you